Well, I sound like Ronald Reagan. Um, a little different role for me this morning, right? Um, definitely a different role this morning. I'm actually really honored for the opportunity to be here and, and speak to you guys. So I've been looking forward to this. Tons of effort has gone into it, and now I'm just asking God to fill in the cracks. So um, before I get started, um, would you join me in prayer? Father God, help me not to stink. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> as, uh, as Brent was mentioning, we're continuing this series called Revision, where we're looking at the great lessons that we can learn from the lesser-known people in the Bible, right? These characters that are in the Bible that you don't really know a lot about them, but they're in there. What's up with that, right? So um, just knowing more about their stories helps give us some great examples of how you and I can live the life of faith that God intends for us. Um, Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 10.11. He says, These things happened to them, those people who lived back then, uh, as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. So when Brent asked me to, to, to preach this morning, uh, he told us kind of what the series was going to be on. He gave me a few characters to choose from, and I was having a hard time trying to decide um, until he told me a story, and it's out of actually 2 Kings 2, the, the, a lot of the passage we were studying this morning. Um, when he shared this story with me, it kind of made my choice for me. I'm going to call it Elisha and the Two Bears, and again, it's in 2 Kings 2, 23 through 24. It says this, Then he, Elisha, went up from there to Bethel, and as he was going up by the way, young lads came out from the city and mocked him and said to him, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. <laughs> What's so funny? Um, when he looked behind him and saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then two female bears came out of the woods and tore up 42 lads of their number. Okay. So let me get this straight. Bald head? It's okay, guys. I'm used to it. I... Okay. Um, that's a pretty obvious one. So that one fit. And then the cursing. I mean, I may have been known to curse at people in rush hour traffic. In the name of the Lord. Come on, people. Okay. And then 42. I, I don't know if you know me well enough to know that 42 is kind of my number. It's not good. It's not bad. It's just one that comes up in my life over and over. My Pinewood Derby car that I made when I was nine years old, got it out of the attic a few years back. Number 42 on it. Weird, right? Okay, it started with Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, if you know that story. Um, anyway, that 42, it's in my email address, everything. That kind of sealed the deal for me. Oh, and by the way, guys with the bear, really? 42 youth were mauled by two female bears before you came up with a defense strategy? <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> Sheesh. Which actually reminds me of another story. Uh, who knows where Glacier National Park is? Okay, some of you need a geography lesson, but that's okay. Um, this, this notice was posted in Glacier National Park a few years back. There was an alarming number of grizzly bear attacks, so they were trying to kind of stave those off. Um, anyway, it's, it read like this. In light of rising frequency of human grizzly bear conflicts, 
The U.S. Department of Fish and Wildlife recommends extra precaution while in the field. We advise the wearing of several bells on your clothing to help prevent from startling the bears. It makes, makes sense. We also suggest the carrying of pepper spray in case of an encounter. I guess they react just like we do. So, um, bells and pepper spray. They also said, we advise vigilance in looking for signs of bear activity in the form of bear droppings and in being able to distinguish the difference between black bear and grizzly bear droppings. Okay, so again, this is important. The black bear droppings are smaller. They contain berry seeds, bits of squirrel fur, and have a slightly sweet smell. What are they? Really? What are you doing there? Grizzly bear droppings often contain bells and smell like pepper. Okay. So, who is this Elisha guy, anyway? Many confuse Elisha and Elijah. It's a little confusing. Elisha was actually Elijah's lesser-known apprentice. Um, but it is confusing. Their names are similar. It'd be, like, it'd be like a guy named Steve Hudson having a son and naming him Steve Hudson. Right? You guys do know that Brent's first name is Steve Hudson. It's Steve, right? His first name isn't Steve Hudson. His first name is Steve. Um, Wait, was this on when I said that? Uh Uh-oh. Might be a little trouble on that one. (laughs) Here I am preaching. Oh, How to Not Preach Again by David Grisham, available on Amazon. (laughs) Well, you're stuck with me this morning. So Um, what we're going to learn today is how you and I can live in between the miracles in our own lives. Before I go any further, guys, I need you to understand something. The Christian life is supposed to be miraculous. Um, If you're just starting to check out faith and you're wondering who this Jesus guy is all about, you are supposed to have a miraculous life. It's the way it's designed. The Christian life begins with the miracle of new life through Jesus. And it ends with us in heaven being perfected by God. Can I get a hallelujah? Right? God does miracles in our lives every single day, but we don't always understand what the miracles are. There are two kinds of miracles. There's supernatural miracles, and there's life-change miracles. So, we've all heard of the supernatural miracles. They're the ones that God does in nature, like where he splits the Red Sea, or where he feeds 5,000, or where he gave sight to the blind man. Um, they're pretty impressive. I mean, they're, they're hard to miss. We remember them for a long time. They're undeniable. They're great miracles. They're the kind that, that, that make, tend to make the news. And then there are the life change miracles. That's where God changes our hearts. It's where he changes our life and brings us to faith in Christ. He changes our character to be more like his. It's easy to think the supernatural miracles, I mean, those are the real miracles, right? They're the ones we've studied and we've heard all the stories. But if you think about it, the supernatural miracles, are, they're physical and they only last as long as this earth lasts, which is not going to be forever. But when God changes our lives, the Bible says those last for eternity. They're going to last forever. So when God restores a relationship, the joy of that lasts forever. When he changes our character, The power of that lasts forever. When he delivers us from addiction or shame, the healing of that is complete and it lasts forever. So really, the greater miracles are the ones he performs in our hearts. 
They're the ones where he transforms us for all of eternity, which is a long time. You guys ever wonder why we don't see more miracles today? I mean, we've heard all the stories of all the miracles in the Bible, and, but you don't, really, uh, you don't really see a lot of them, right? We, and, and, and for those that we do see, why do we have to wait so long for the miracles to happen? Why doesn't that one miracle happen? You know the one I'm talking about? The one that, that you've been praying for? The one that we've been asking God for? The, the one that if nothing else good in our life ever happened, we would just want that one miracle to happen. Why not that one? And the truth is that miracles are not about what we're asking for, what we're praying for. Miracles are all about what God is doing. In Psalm 86, it says, For you are great and do great miracles. You alone are God. Make no mistake, guys. God's doing miracles in this world. He desires to do miracles in our lives today, even in the midst of our questions. And by focusing on the miracle that isn't happening, that might cause us to miss the many that are. So how do we train our hearts and our minds to notice God's miracles today? How, how do we do that? Elisha teaches us two keys that are important for learning to live between the miracles in our lives. Number one, most of life is going to be between the miracles. And number two, the key to seeing the next miracle in life is learning to recognize the last one. So Elisha teaches us things about how to live this way. There are three concepts that I want to share with you this morning that we can apply to our lives to help us see the miracles around us. You ready? You ready? Okay, well, good, because we're going anyway, so. First, we must live with tenacity. Elisha spent years and years as the apprentice to Elijah, out in the desert, out of the spotlight. He's kind of unknown. Nobody really saw him. He didn't really see a lot of miracles in his own life. By the way, how do you sign up to be an apprentice in the art of miracles anyway, right? I mean... It's kind of an unusual calling. You don't hear little Johnny saying, you know, hey, Johnny, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a miracle worker, right? That doesn't happen. But Elisha teaches us that what we do is we sign up to be a servant. Because the servants are the ones in the economy of God that see the miracles. And when the miracles come from serving God and from loving others, when it becomes part of our relationship with God, it causes us to praise rather than us to be proud. So let's look at the miracle that happened to them that day to Elijah and Elisha. Uh, this is how Elisha began to live with tenacity. Second Kings chapter 2 reads, it should be in your notes. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, that, by the way, is the miracle that's going to happen this day. Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives and you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Then Elijah said to him, stay here, Elisha, the Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, as surely as the Lord lives and you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. Elijah again said to him, stay here, the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, as surely as the Lord lives and you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. 
You see the tenacity? Okay, so we're going to call it tenacity. If it was one of my kids, it would probably be called something else. But here we're going to call it tenacity because that's what it was. Even though Elijah said, hey, Elisha, stay here. I'm going on. Elisha said, no, no, I'm, I'm going with you. See, the miracle wasn't going to happen at Bethel or at Jericho. It was going to happen at the Jordan. So to see the miracles in our lives, we need to have the tenacity to go all the way to the Jordan. So if God is challenging you, or stretching you, it just may be that he's, being, he's getting ready to do a miracle in your life. So what does tenacity look like in our lives? One of the greatest miracles in our collective lives as a church is, is when we celebrate baptism. It's when someone stands and takes a stand for Christ in front of God and everybody. That is a miracle. It's a salvation miracle. I've got a few stories to tell you. This one is about my son Clayton. When um, when he realized he had an interest in, in Megan Zollers, it's kind of a no-brainer, but when he had an interest in Megan Zollers, uh, he acted with tenacity and integrity. He told Megan that he was a person of faith and that he needed to know that she was at least open to exploring what he believed. And by the way, he was a high school sophomore. She agreed, and even though she had never attended church, I, never, like never attended church, ever. After some prodding from Clayton, she started attending youth events. And she started attending youth group. And then, then he encouraged her to come to service. And she did, kind of tip, dipped her toe in the water. Um, then she coached at ISA. And guys, eight months after they started dating, we baptized Megan at family camp. Yeah. It was amazing. It was a, it was a miracle. But the tenacity didn't stop there. Clayton's tenacity rubbed off on Megan. Megan's pretty tenacious anyway. But <laughs> in this sense, his tenacity rubbed off on Megan. Um, Megan went on a mission trip. And her mom was paying attention. Her mom, Beth. And her brothers, Andrew and Jackson and her sister, Claire. They were all paying attention. And little by little, she started inviting them. I think she started with Beth. And then, and then she invited Claire and her brothers. And they all started getting involved. And they started coming to Fusion, and they came to youth events again, and then regular work week services. And pretty soon, they're kind of regulars here. Okay, so the last summer, I got to stand in Lake Wenatchee when we baptized Beth, Claire, Andrew, and Jackson at family camp. Ah, <laughs> oh, man, that didn't get me first service. Uh, I think it's looking you in the face. Um, what a miracle we witnessed that day. Uh, four brand new lives that submitted their life to Christ. And now Jackson is on the fusion team. Hey, Jackson. Um, he's on the dance team. Andrew has been on many, many mission trips. Hi, Andrew. Um, Claire is now home from college. She's excited to, to have finished her schooling, and she's here in town. She's excited to be involved here more. And Beth is a respected, valued member of our board. Now, some of you might say, she, she got baptized less than a year ago. She's on your church board. Yep. Yep. You know why? Because she brings perspective and firsthand knowledge of why we do what we do, guys. We reached her. 
Without Clayton's tenacity, much of it may not have happened. Okay, so you got the tenacity point. First, we live with tenacity. Second, we live with sensitivity. We live with sensitivity to what God is doing in the world. With sensitivity to the fact that there's more going on around us than we see. So much more. Listen to how it worked in Elisha's life. Second Kings. Uh, the company of the prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied, but do not speak of it. Wow, rude. So they're all sensitive to the fact that God is going to do something that day. It's a special day. And there's really nothing super spiritual here. We, we become sensitive to whatever we focus on. Uh, whatever we spend time on. If we're sensitive to the mood of our spouse or our children, we might pick up on some things in them that others might miss. If we're involved in a sport for a long time, we probably see things, opportunities to score or move the ball forward um, that others don't. So it's about where our focus has been. And these guys were sensitive to God's work because they'd spent so much time thinking about God's work in their lives. Okay. The key to us experiencing more miracles in our lives is not us convincing God to do what we want done. It's being sensitive to what God wants done. Let me say that again. The key to us experiencing more miracles in our lives is not us convincing God to do what we want done. It's us being sensitive to what God wants done. Guys, newsflash. God's going to get done what he wants to get done. To quote the great philosopher, Dr. Phil, duh. <laughs> now, maybe he's not going to do the miracle as soon as we'd like, but he's going to get done what he wants to get done. And I'm pretty sure we all want to be part of that miracle, right? So Elisha teaches us how to be sensitive to the things God wants done in this world in two specific ways. Number one, we're sensitive to God's actions. How's he going to act? What's he going to do next? They were sensitive that day that this was Elijah's last day on earth. They all knew it. And by the way, that sensitivity empowered Elisha's tenacity. Because he knew what was going to happen that day, he kept staying with Elijah. He was sensitive to what God was doing in the world. So, how do you and I become more sensitive to what God is doing in the world? There's two ways, really. There's a lot of twos this morning, so get used to it. Um, two ways, God's word and God's people. We become more sensitive when we read the Bible, which, after all, is God's word. And when we spend time in church, in community with God's people, that's the way he designed it. Both of these teach us to become more sensitive to what God's doing. God wrote his word to tell us what he's all about, who he is, what's important to him. And when we understand his traits we're more sensitive because we're made in his image. He gave us church. He gave us his people because he knew we would need that to help make us sensitive to what's going on. So, if you're not already, get in a connect group. It's often when you're in a connect group that, bam, something hits you, a thought hits you you've never thought of before. Why? Because somebody else saw it a little differently. It gives you perspective. 
we become sensitive to the work of God in those moments. So again, we become sensitive to God's actions through God's word and God's people. Then we become sensitive in a second way. We become sensitive to people's needs. See, God's at work in this world meeting people's needs. As a matter of fact, working miracles in our lives, that's a lot of what defines God. He wants to work those miracles in our lives. He wants us to ask. So to be involved in in what God's doing, we have to be sensitive to people's needs. That's all there is to it. Elisha was. You know, they were all saying, hey, Elijah, you're going to die that day. And Elisha said, yeah, don't speak of it. Why? Because he was sensitive to the fact that Elijah probably wasn't all that excited about the topic. I mean, who wants to hear, hey, you're going to die? Adios, muchacho. Hasta la vista, baby. You're out of here, right? Nobody wants to hear that. So Elisha picked up on that. It's a pretty obvious one, okay? But let's give it to him. Um, Sometimes sensitivity to people's needs is obvious. And sometimes it's really subtle. Sometimes it's just being there in a quiet moment with someone, not really saying much, just, just staying with them. When somebody's in grief, often they just need us to sit with them and just to be with them. So how do we do this one? How do we become more sensitive to the needs of people? Well, two ways. We listen with our ears and with our eyes. With our ears and our eyes. In the early part of this year, Brent challenged us to pick a word for the year, right? One that we kind of live by. It won't surprise a lot of you that know me that I couldn't pick just one. (laughs) That's a whole other story. (laughs) But um, one of my words that I picked was listen. Um, See, I I don't listen well enough to God or to others. Just ask my lovely wife, Gretchen. She'll be more than happy to tell you. Now, I want to, I try to, but I'm, I'm too quick to what I like to call share my thoughts. <laughs> and you guys, what that really means is that I'm, I'm not taking the time to fully understand the needs of others. So right now, I'm working on listening to understand rather than listening to respond. What about listening with our eyes? All of us have heard, you know, the importance of eye contact in a job interview situation, whatever. If you and I are sitting, we're having a conversation, right? We're at Starbucks having a coffee. And, and I'm like this, right? And you're talking and you're looking at this. There's no way you feel like I'm listening to you. There's no way. And truthfully, I'm probably not. I am Mr. Squirrel, okay? So if instead, when we're having a conversation... I look you straight in the eye. I'm looking at you and I'm talking to you and I'm relating to you, right? And we're connecting. We're connecting with our ears and with our eyes. It's then, when I'm listening to you both of those ways, that we really learn true sensitivity. It's one of the keys to understanding what God's doing in the world and in our lives and in the lives of others. When we do these things, when we become more sensitive to God's actions, and people's needs, we start to pick up on something that's kind of surprising. And that is that some of the greatest miracles that God does is in the midst of our most difficult, disastrous times. You'd think that as believers in Christ, we'd kind of get this point. Here's what I mean. In seemingly the most disastrous moment in history, when Jesus Christ 
is taken as a criminal to the hill and he is nailed to a cross. The Son of God. God turns that into a glorious moment. It becomes the place where we find forgiveness. It becomes the birthplace of the resurrection. The cross of all places. Okay, so even when God's son is hanging on that tree, dying, and it looked like everything was falling apart, God was actually putting everything together. The same thing is true in our lives. If God wants to do miracles, even in the midst of our greatest difficulties. Many of you may know uh, my story of my health struggle last spring. Uh, I developed a rash on my legs. I went into the doctor. They ran some tests, and uh, they found that I had low platelets. A normal platelet count is between 150 and 400. At 50, there's concern. At 15, uh, you may not clot if you're cut. At 10, you can bleed internally, and they can't stop it. I was at two. Um, it was pretty serious. I was put on IV treatments. I was put on 110 milligrams of prednisone. If anybody knows what prednisone does to a person, my gosh, my, I was a raging lunatic, my poor family. <sighs> then I was put on Rituxan for a few months. And you fast forward uh, to this last May, praise God, I was at 159. <laughs> So, so God used the minds of the doctors and the drugs developed by chemists in these pharmaceutical labs and, and, and companies and a quick diagnosis and, a, and all of that came together to do a supernatural miracle in my life. And I'm so grateful. But the real miracles were completely unexpected. They were the phone calls from church friends saying, hey, I'd like to pay you a visit. There were others that said, I want to drop by a care package or people that wanted to come and just sit with me and help me pass the time. People that brought balloons or cards brightened my spirits. It, it, was, it was amazing. I actually was a little bit embarrassing. Promises of people from dozens of people who I knew were going to be praying for me. Um, I even have a really good friend who's a nurse practitioner in oncology and knew the ins and outs of the treatment that I was going through. She counseled me through the whole ordeal. You have absolutely no idea how valuable that was to me. Those, guys, are the real miracles. Those are the life-changed miracles. Those are the things where people got involved and people were sensitive to my needs. And through it all, I fell more in love with this church and with my friends. And things now have a little bit less of a hold on me than they had before. I'm still working on it, but... I was able to see how God meets every single one of my needs. That's what he wants to do. Okay, so we need to be tenacious. We need to be sensitive. The third key that Elisha teaches us is to live with purity. We see Elisha's purity in what he asks for. Listen to his plea in 2 Kings. 50 men of the company of prophets went and stood at a distance facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me, what can I do 
for you before I am taken from you. Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. I can just hear him. You have asked a difficult thing. (laughs) Elisha said, uh, if you see me when I am taken from you, Elijah said, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, not. So, what do you know? Elisha knew to stay with Elijah. And Elijah's purity was evidenced in the fact that he was unafraid to ask for what he most desired. So Elisha defines purity in terms of what we want to be, in terms of what we want to do. He knew what he was asking for. He had spent years and years as a witness. He'd seen the toll that this life could take on a person. It had driven Elijah to places of deep depression several times. God had to save him. And yet, he asked for it anyway, knowing full well it was more of a responsibility than a privilege. And he had the purity to ask for it just the same. So sometimes we do the word purity a little bit of a disservice, right? We, we tend to define it in terms of what we don't do. It's valid, makes sense, but there's no doubt about it. There are some things that we avoid in our lives to have purity in our heart, right? Purity in our life. Um, Avoiding drunkenness, being faithful to our spouse, being guarded on what we see on the internet. So don't get me wrong, those things are honorable and they're important, but they're not really purity. There's got to be something more to it. Because of our incomplete understanding of purity, we become trapped. We end up fixating on the very things we're trying to avoid. Does anybody get that, right? I don't want to do this. What do you end up doing? One of the reasons we get into that trap is because we haven't seen the positive definition of purity. And there is one. Let me give you a different definition. Write this in with me. Purity is the single-minded ambition to do something great for God. Purity is the single-minded ambition to do something great for God. When we do that, we find ourselves not being drawn back into the things that plague us. Why? Because we have something else to look at. We have someplace else to go. If you're going to have a squirrel, it might as well be the squirrel that God wants you to follow, right? It's a weird statement. Anyway, we'll, just, we'll edit that out. And that's a reminder guys, of the fact that we wouldn't be sitting here at Silver Creek if it weren't for a miraculous God. I want to tell you another story. I know, sorry. Um, It's the story of my journey the last 20 years, from where I was to being a worship director at a church that I love. It's a story I never could have written myself, never would have written myself, but you get to hear it anyway. (laughs) In 97... Gretchen and I were expecting Clayton. And we bought a house in Shoreline. We were praying for a church that felt like home. A church where our family could be involved and our children could be taught and mentored and encouraged. And guess what? We found Aurora Nazarene on the corner of 175th and Meridian. And that was the answer to our prayer. Shortly after we started attending, an old friend asked if I could play keys with worship. And I thought, I've got this figured out, right? Oh, gee, I'm sorry I can't do that. Uh, I can't read chords. I can only read printed music. So, sorry. She says, oh, that's okay. I'll teach you. Great. And I started serving on worship team. Uh, We met Steve Strickler there when he served as the interim pastor at Aurora Nazarene. But 
Our prayers for a church that felt like home were yet to be fully realized. In 2005, there were 19 of us uh, who is what is now called the, the fusion team. We were called to something new. We were called to something for families. We were called to something for people in the margins. People that didn't feel like they fit in at church. I know a lot of you that are like that. And it's cool. Seattle Family Church was born. We had no building. We had no money. We had no equipment. No pastor. No staff. Guys, we were clueless. We had no idea what we were doing. Okay? And yet the call was undeniable. I wasn't aware of it at that time, but God was still answering my prayers for a church that felt like home. God was working, though. Since I was the one in the 19 of us that had the most experience with worship, whatever that was, I was asked to take the role of worship director for six months. That was 13 years ago. Stephen Ruthie Strickler left a position at Salem First Nazarene, a really good position, by the way. They came all the way up here, moved up here, and they came to pastor us and took no salary for two years. Two years. Through that, we got to meet Ashley and her sister Emily and Travis. <laughs> I'm kidding. Travis is awesome. Um, but we built a team, uh, Tyler and Johnny and Dan, and this worship team started to kind of come together. And, and yet, my prayers for a church that felt like home were still not completely realized. Through Steve's connection, through Gold Creek, we found out about Silver Creek Community Church and that it was facing some tough times. Um, we heard they had a newly appointed pastor who was really young, had a really good heart, virtually no experience, but he was very handsome. He, Wait, who put that? Brent, did you put that in there? Oh, shameless. Okay, so we began meeting or dating as I used to call it. Um, quickly, we fell in love. And in December of 2008, we got married. We didn't have to, but it was clear, right? Yeah, that's a big deal. It's a big deal. Um, the new name of the church was Silver Creek Family Church. And it was full of great people who wanted hope for a bright future. And we had a really handsome... Pa <laughs> Point taken, Brent. Okay. And I got to add Tommy and Lori and Cindy and Don and Mary and Michelle. The list goes on. Started to build this fantastic team. See, the prayers that I made with my wife for a church that felt like home back in 97 led to a great start at Aurora, which developed my worship skills. And then 2005, a crazy transition. And then 2008, another crazy transition. And it led here to this very Sunday. Folks... You are the church I was praying for 20 years ago. You're the answer to my prayers for a church that felt like home. I walked all the way to the Jordan, to my Jordan, to see this miracle. And by God's grace, Silver Creek is a miracle. In Linwood, we are vibrant, we are healthy, we are reaching, we are following God's call. First and foremost, following God's call and looking toward a future with great hope. And we're a local favorite, guys. People like us, all right? And as a matter of fact, if we were a hamburger, I think we'd be a Dick's Deluxe. <laughs> Dick's special, I don't know, there's always this big debate. But the bottom line is, we're not fancy but we're pretty stinking good. But 
outside of church? How do we see the miracles the rest of the week? It starts by having, again, a single-minded ambition to do something great for God wherever we are. So in your daily lives, in your school, in your home, your job, your community, as you're, as you're dreaming, as you're planning, as you're setting goals, do what Paul talked about in Philippians chapter 3. Repeat after me. I press on to take hold, on to take hold. of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Okay, so the bottom line, what we just said, don't give up. Keep pressing. Like Dory in Finding Nemo, just keep swimming, just keep swimming, right? I don't know how, I don't know what Dory has to do with this, but anyway. Keep pressing toward the calling that God has placed in your life. That is our job. How do you live with more spiritual purity? The answer is in 2 Timothy 2.22. I can find it here. It says, Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So this is how purity happens. We run away, we run toward, we run with. Away, toward, with. There are things in our life that we've run away from. There are old ways of living that in order to have purity in our lives, we've had to run away from them. Maybe some old relationships or some some habits or idols of our heart. Okay, when we run away from those things and we try to run try to run from a negative without a positive to run toward, it's like electricity. We run in circles, we short circuit. God wants to run, wants us to run toward righteousness, toward faith, toward love, toward peace. He doesn't just want us to flee. He wants us to run toward the kind of character that God wants in our life, to be the kind of person that God wants us to be. The great thing is that God wants to use our life. Maybe he wants us to be a great example of who Jesus is or be light to people that need light or or maybe hope to people who need hope. Maybe just start there, nothing more than that. Then maybe the most important thing we run with. We run with people who call on the Lord with a pure heart. If we want to become more pure, we spend time with people who want to become more pure. Who would have thought it, right? That's how it works, folks. Teens, are you listening? In fact, my brother-in-law, Michael Voles, one of the smartest people I know, and he often says that we become a combination of the five people we spend the most time with. And he's right. So, if a friend is making you do things you don't really want to do, get a new friend, period. If they're tempting you to bend the truth or asking you to cover for them or teaching you to hide or sneak or steal or cheat, they'll only destroy what God would have you be otherwise. See, God's on one side, Satan's on the other side. They're both trying to get your attention. It's really that simple. It's that black and white. And that's how it happens. We run away, we run toward, we run with. And when we do all of these things, something starts to happen. It's, the result is a kind of purity 
and new clarity in our life that we start to see things we never saw before. Jesus talked about it when he said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So all of this comes into the end of the, of the story of Elisha. Look at the end, uh, verses 11 through 14. It says, as they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, my father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them apart, which was a way to express grief back then. He picked up the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from him and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah, he asked. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. So the same miracle that Elijah did on the way in. So now, the God of Elijah was now the God of Elisha. And Elisha recognized that God was with him. He saw God's presence in his life and that God wanted to do great things through his life. And guys, God wants to do great things through your life. I want to mention something um, that can be a little bit dangerous. So you ever heard somebody say, if you just have enough faith, God will fill in the blank? Anybody heard that? Okay, so I submit that it's well-intentioned, obviously. But it's also kind of ridiculous. And this is what I mean. The Apostle Paul, who, oh yeah, by the way, he wrote like the last half of the Bible, just in case you're wondering, might have been fairly in tune with God. He prayed numerous times that God would do a miracle of healing in his life. We don't know what it was. He had a thorn in the flesh, he called it. Never really tells us what it was, but there's been all kinds of speculation. But it was significant, and he wanted to get rid of it so badly. He asked God over and over and over and over to do this healing in his life, but God said no. And sometimes God says no. We don't know why. It doesn't make sense. We don't like it. But sometimes he just says no. It's not a matter of having enough faith, folks. So we need to trust the God who made everything. And in the end, we're going to see and understand it all. We can trust that. So we need to make the decision to trust him. We need to choose tenacity. We need to choose sensitivity. We need to choose purity. I'd like to encourage you to do that now in in this time, this brief time as we close. I I know this is when we put our pens away and we kind of get ready to go. I understand that. But what if God wants to do something in your life right now? Not, not because of me, trust me, but because of him. So let's take the quietness of these moments to let God speak to you. Would you pray with me? You might need to pray an honest prayer and say, I've given up, Lord. You may need to ask him to renew your tenacity. Maybe you need to pray, I've tuned out, Lord. Maybe you need to ask him to restore your sensitivity. Or maybe you've caved in and you need to ask him to revive your purity. For all of us, I want to invite you to join me in this simple prayer. Just say to yourself and God, Lord, I trust you to do the miracles in my life and in this world that you want done. And even though I don't understand all of the why and all of the when, I'm settling and setting my heart on these three words today. I trust you. I trust you now. I will run away. I will run toward. And I will run with 
In Jesus' name, amen.